Tonight on The Readout. Asking about this news that uh, Speaker McCarthy has formally launched an impeachment inquiry, has said he's going to. Oh my God, really? Oh my gosh, you know, oh, it's devastating. (laughs) Ooh, don't do it. Please don't do it. Oh no, oh no. Senator John Fetterman summing up the absurdity of Kevin McCarthy's clown car caucus, which is getting ready to launch an impeachment inquiry against President Biden, despite zero evidence of wrongdoing. Plus, my observations as I return from a trip to Spain and Ghana on the very troublesome history of organized religion here at home and around the world. Religion can be quite beautiful, but it is often used to justify some of the world's, some of the worst aspects of humanity, including right now with the MAGA right, using it to justify almost every kind of abusive anti-democracy behavior. Good evening, everyone. As you know, I've been away for a few days. I was in Europe and Africa, and I will have much more on that a bit later in the show. But as you travel, as you travel fans know, getting out of the world, getting out into the world gives you perspective. It's why it's such a great thing to do if you can swing it, even if it's just to get outside your own hometown. And Africa, for me personally, is the most fascinating continent, not just because my family roots are there. It's just a fascinating place with a unique history that we generally hear almost nothing about in American schools. So when Americans talk about Africa, specifically the governments on the continent, what they usually think of is itinerant dictators who let their former colonizers exploit their natural resources while they and their families get rich. Autocrats like Idi Amin, who kill a bunch of their own people and try to stay in power for life and tend to love Russia. That's the stereotype. And there have been African leaders like that. On the other hand, there are perfectly normal, peaceful, stable democracies like Ghana, which is where my husband and I were last week. And people with money and big cities the whole night. When you actually talk to Africans, they will often remind you that for four years, Americans had exactly the kind of autocrat that we say they have, namely Donald Trump. I mean, Trump did enrich himself and his adult children through the presidency. Jared walked away with a cool $2 billion from the Saudis on top of what Trump himself raked in from his hotels while president, including one that he leased in D.C. from the federal government. Literally a million people died from COVID on his watch, in part due to his disinformation. He tried to stay in power using an armed coup and stoked racial and religious hatred. And he loves Russia. Check, 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 and double-T check. But if you ask Republicans, the real bad guy, the actual autocrat, the criminal mastermind behind a web of corruption, the one who's been lying to the American people while enriching himself and his family— is the same guy they simultaneously claim is a doddering old fool who can't tie his shoelaces, President Joe Biden. He's like a Marvel villain when he's awake. And somehow he's running Hunter Biden's companies using only his feeble mind. That was the decree today from minor league House Speaker Kevin McCarthy as he directed the House to open an impeachment inquiry into Biden. We are committed to getting the answers for the American public. Nothing more. Nothing less. We will go wherever the evidence takes us. McCarthy says the chairs of three House committees will coordinate the inquiry. Jason Smith of Ways and Means and Screamy Jim Jordan from Judiciary will work with Oversight Chairman James Comer. So here's where his evidence has taken us so far. 
Have you found anything illegal while he was actually in office? Well, we found a lot that's certainly unethical. We found a lot that should be illegal. There's no evidence that Joe Biden did anything illegally. Well, if you look at the the laptop and the emails between the president's son and his associates, they went to great lengths to hide Joe's involvement. Hold on a second, Congressman. Did you just say that the whistleblower or the informant is now missing? Well, we we're hopeful that we could find the informant. Make it easy for us. What was the crime? Well, the crime is uh, trading policy for for money. Which policy? Well, we're going to get into that. <laughs> for the love of God, you just help our programming and tell us what the crime is. That is, by the way, the same Jim Comer, whose investigations were called eight months of abject failure by a watchdog group. Of course, it's not just his investigations over in the Senate. Equally motivated Trump defenders have done their part. Senators Ron Johnson, one of the alleged bag men for Trump's January 6th coup try, and Chuck Grassley, the coup plotter's backup plan if the whole Pence thing didn't work out, looked into the Bidens and found, wait for it, nothing. Zero. Zip. Undeterred, Kevin's little MAGA house will carry on. Even though 11 days ago, he said he would not open an inquiry without a House vote. But now McCarthy appears appears to have capitulated to the loudest voices in the Trumpiest flank of his caucus. Marjorie Taylor Greene, his actual boss, has gone kind of soft on her calls to impeach Biden immediately, now asking for a tedious impeachment inquiry, also known as a fishing expedition. McCarthy has also ignored conservative Freedom Caucus member Ken Buck, who called Marge's demands absurd, pointing out that no actual evidence exists to impeach Joe Biden. And McCarthy has completely disregarded the numerous vulnerable Republicans who have warned him not to pursue impeachment. In less than one day back at work, McCarthy said, so what to all of that? Why bring an inquiry to a vote that he can't win anyway? Democrats most certainly aren't going to help him. And a bunch of vulnerable Republicans are like, nah. So it's YOLO time. Impeachment inquiry it is. Why? Because in order to get his hands on the precious gavel, he sold his soul over the course of 14 votes in January. Impeachment is the price of Kevin McCarthy being speaker. Full stop. Yet even the inquiry isn't enough for the chaos caucus. Minutes, minutes after McCarthy spoke. MAGA Matt Gates went to the House floor and called the impeachment inquiry a baby step and added this. Mr. Speaker, you are out of compliance with the agreement that allowed you to assume this role. The path forward for the House of Representatives is to either bring you into immediate total compliance or remove you. Heel dog heel. So, you know, good job with that, Kevin. House Republicans will move forward with their evidence-free impeachment inquiry. And since they've been gutting their own intellectual capacity since the Tea Party movement and replacing normal politicians with cranks and conspiracy theorists, it is a mystery how they will make their case since they have no facts, no case, and nobody in their ranks who can do this. It was an attack to our republic, to our democratic process. You know you can't trust this president to do what's right for this country. You can trust he will do what's right for Donald Trump. 
The times have found us, said Tom Paine, the namesake of my son. The times have found us. Is this America? What kind of America will we be? It's now literally in your hands. Joining me now, Simon Rosenberg, Democratic strategist and author of the Hopium Chronicles on Substack, which I subscribe to and you all should, too. You know, Simon, my friend, it, it is it is mind boggling to me a, a bit um, that Republicans who don't have a lot of heavyweights, let's just, you know, to be kind, they don't have a lot of like constitutional scholars on their team. They got a lot of like cranks. Right. So they don't have anybody that's going to get up there and be articulate like we just heard. They don't have yeah. a Jamie Raskin. So they don't have that. Um but also, more importantly, they don't have any facts. So you're a, you're a strategist Oops, yeah. in the political world. Why would they bother with this enterprise? So my theory of the case is that over the summer, their indictment of Biden as president became much weaker. The economy continues to be strong. Inflation's way down. His border plan is working. Infla- um, uh, murder rates are way down. So the, so the issues around crime... Uh, the border, inflation, the economy, which are the key things they've been attacking Biden on, have sort of evaporated yeah. in the last few months. And so what did they have left to feed the right-wing noise machine beast every day? They had to go after Biden as man, as father, as a person, not as president. And the yeah. problem is that's a losing strategy for them. This, there's, a sign, there's a feeling of, I think, desperation, something deeply pathetic about what's happening here. Yeah. And, and it's a sign of weakness, not strength for them. Because I think their, their main thing they got to do is indict Biden as, as president. Right. That's become very hard. So now they're moving to the next target, which is Biden as old man, Biden is corrupt guy. Yeah. This is thin gruel. And I think it's going to be it's a losing strategy. For and he can't be both. Right. Yeah. I mean, they, they used Hillary Clinton and to return her into the Wicked Witch of the West. Right. And so <laughs> and they and they, they clawed away just enough from her. And then when, you know, of course, good old uh, the good old, old FBI yeah. came out and said, yeah, we may be looking into her emails. That was just enough to, like, squeak Trump through. And so I guess the hope is that they can dirty her up a little bit. It, Kevin McCarthy and uh, what's her name? Marjorie Taylor Greene. They're admitting that they're doing this to try to rev up the base. She said, we, we can't rev up the base if we don't do this. They need the base. So they need him to be dirtied up. But here's my question again on strategy. You can't say he's both a drooling old man <laughs> who literally cannot tie his own shoes yeah. and is probably not even uh, you know awake most of the day and someone else is controlling the presidency. And he's a master criminal who actually is the one running Hunter Biden's companies. And we love guns, but Hunter Biden getting a gun means he's a criminal. Yeah. And you know what I mean? You're, you're piling yeah. a lot of crap on. I, it doesn't match. But I don't think, you know, logic and sense really <laughs> is a, a primary concern of Republicans. Right. They're just look, there's a sense they're throwing stuff against the wall here. I mean, they're losing this election. They're not going to beat Joe Biden if the economy is strong. Our allies are, you know, the West has come back together. Joe Biden has been a very good president. The country is better off. And they have Donald Trump. Yeah. And they know that this is going to be really hard. So I, I think the expectation we all have to have is that in their desperation, they're going to start doing more outrageous things. As even, you know, as outrageous as they've been over the last few years, I think we, this is a beginning of a sign of the unraveling of the Republican Party in this in this desperate effort to make this election competitive. A lot of us remember the Hillary Clinton hearings where Kevin McCarthy foolishly actually didn't become speaker because he admitted on TV that they were doing it in order to dirty her up. Right. She lasted 11 hours in withering uh, yeah. questioning and did great and actually kind of helped yeah. her. You tweeted this, though, because when it comes to Biden versus Trump, you said you tweeted the following. Uh, the end of American democracy, recession, economic 
ruin, plutocratic <laughs> tax policy, warmer planet, rolling back climate gains, more guns, more dead kids, 10-year-olds giving birth to their rapist babies, and Russian victory in Ukraine. That is what they're selling. Yeah. And so in your view, is this impeachment of Biden so they don't have to talk about that? I think it's a sideshow. I mean, I think, look, if they can't beat Biden on foreign policy and the economy, they're not going to win the election. And yeah. right now he's doing really well on this. This is all a sideshow. I, I go back at a strategy level, right, is that they're talking about Hunter and Biden's age. They're losing the election. Yeah. They need to be talking about the stuff that really matters to the American people. And I think this is going to reinforce how far away they've become uh, away from the electorate and how they become distracted by politics yeah. and not by the primary reason that they were sent there, which is to do, to do good for the American people. I think this reinforces the worst of the Republican brand. Uh, I can argue with that. <laughs> Simon <laughs> Rosenberg, my friend, thank you thank very you. much. Uh, let's bring in Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, ranking Democrat on the House Oversight Committee. And thank you for I know you had to run and get a vote in. So thank you for coming back and joining us. Uh, I, I want to talk to you about this because D Donald Trump was impeached twice. The first impeachment, ironically enough, was about the same stuff that is being rehashed in order to try to impeach Joe Biden. The same Burisma stuff, stuff that most Americans who don't watch Fox know nothing about. They don't know who Hunter Biden even is. What do you make of the fact that it does feel, in a sense, like Republicans are refighting a fight Trump wants because he's obsessed with Joe Biden and Hunter Biden? Well, that's right. Donald Trump is the one insisting upon the impeachment so he can establish some kind of false moral equivalency between his utterly corrupt reign, which now has led to 91 criminal charges versus uh, Joe Biden's unblemished uh, record. Um, and you're right. The Ukraine shakedown was all about Donald Trump uh, withholding hundreds of millions of dollars in security and strategic and uh, economic assistance to Ukraine uh, in order to get President Zelensky to falsely assert that there was a criminal corruption probe going on into Joe Biden. And in order to obscure the reality of that shakedown scheme, they concocted all these charges with Rudy Giuliani and Lev Parnas um, against Biden, which didn't go anywhere. And today you've got Lev Parnas, who basically was the mastermind with Rudy Giuliani of that plot, writing a letter to me and Chairman Comer saying there is absolutely nothing there. Call off the wild goose chase. But uh, we, we have returned to the beginning of, uh, you know, these corruption scandals, or at least the ones that have been made public. We haven't really dealt with the emoluments clause scandals where uh, Donald Trump was collecting millions and millions of dollars for himself and his family during his presidency from foreign governments. I'm glad that you brought that up. Our director put up a list of some of the previous presidents who were impeached. I mean, Andrew Johnson was literally running afoul of, uh, you know, a, a law in trying to impeach the secretary of war. Bill Clinton, I think most Americans regarded his impeachment as BS. The Republicans wanted to get him and they wanted to equalize the Nixon impeachment. And so they did it and it made him more popular. And then you, of course, have Donald Trump, who did an insurrection earned that impeachment for that. And in the first one, as you said, tried to shake down Ukraine. And I and I and I, I that substance, what you said, because it feels to me like if those screaming people on the other side start bringing up Burisma and all that, it does invite one to say, 
okay, now do Trump emoluments clause. Now let's do Jared getting $2 billion from the Saudis. Let's talk about the corruption of the Trump administration. That is the natural recourse. Uh, and that is why I'm going to put up a list of some of the skeptical Republicans who are like, yeah, maybe not. It's a long list. It's a long list of people from South Dakota and Arkansas and Montana and Ohio, red states uh, and blue states like Pennsylvania. Let me let me play you what um, John Fetterman had to say a little bit more of what he said about impeachment. It would be a politically accountable for Republicans. Yeah, that's the thing. Your man, your man has what three or four indictments now, and, and you're gonna so like, like I said, you know, like sometimes you just gotta you know, call their call their bullshit. They're gonna threaten them. It, it, it is when you have a president who's been indicted not once, not twice, not three times, but four times, he has been found liable for sexual abuse and has two impeachments. To me, it sounds like they are just inviting Democrats to start talking about that stuff, as John Fetterman said. Is that what's going to happen in the House? Well, you know that I'm the ranking Democrat on the Oversight Committee against Mr. Comer. I can't tell you the number of Democrats who've come up to me today to say, let them do the impeachment. It will be the end of the Republican Party. It will end up in complete defeat and humiliation for them. Of course, I've got a little bit too much respect and love for the Constitution just to let them go down that road with at least pointing out that the constitutional standard is treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And they don't have evidence of any wrongdoing at all <laughs> of Joe Biden. And that's not for a lack of evidence. We have thousands and thousands of pages of documents that they've subpoenaed, that they've gotten, dozens of hours of uh, witness interviews that they've gotten. But far from proving their claims, it all disproves their claims. It all shows that nobody's laid a glove on Joe Biden and he wasn't involved in any of Hunter Biden's business activities. And so that's really the end of the case. But you are making the, the sharp point that half of the impeachments in American history of presidents have been against Donald Trump, two of the four. And the last one ended up not just with a successful impeachment vote in the House, but a 57 to 43 vote, the most widespread bipartisan, bicameral renunciation and denunciation of a president's activities. And that incidentally is what gives, I think, a, a lot of impetus to what's going on around the country in terms of trying to block Donald Trump from even getting on the ballot because of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which says if you've engaged in insurrection or rebellion, you can't serve again in office. And so he's already been essentially found to have engaged in insurrection by both the House and the Senate as a legislative fact. And the reality is, doesn't this impeachment attempt end the moment that Hunter Biden's business partner gets up, puts up his hand and says Joe Biden had nothing to do with Hunter Biden's business? That is game over. And if that ain't game over, the Senate, which has a slight bit more dignity on the Republican side, just a little bit, they're not going to take this up. So it will be a waste, literally a waste of time and a televised inquiry that's going to embarrass Republicans. I don't get it. Are people coming up to you on the background and saying we don't want to do this? Some Republicans, some that I've named, maybe some that I haven't. Oh, yeah. A lot of Republicans think that just politically it is lunatic for them to go down this road. But just think for a second what's happening. You've got people who actually witnessed the insurrection that was incited and unleashed by Donald Trump, which he continues to praise. 
uh, to this very day and says he's going to uh, he's going to pardon uh, at least a substantial portion of the insurrectionists. But people who witnessed that who voted against impeaching the president or against convicting the president, despite all of the powerful evidence that he had incited the insurrection, they voted no on that, but they're going to vote yes to impeach Joe Biden for what? Nobody even knows what the charges are. Nobody can even articulate what high crime and misdemeanor they think he's guilty of. Well, according to Fox, it's being in any way related to poor, sad Hunter Biden. Apparently, that is his crime, being his father and not despising him. I mean, according to Fox, it's going to be what a a time to be alive. Uh, Thank you, Congressman Jamie Raskin. Much appreciated. Up next on The Readout, Donald Trump made his first attempt last night to get charges against him dismissed in the Georgia election interference case. And his 18 co-defendants are hard at work trying to save their own skins. The readout continues after this. As can be expected in any criminal case with multiple co-defendants, Donald Trump and the 18 others charged in Georgia's election interference RICO case are flooding the zone with court filings, with each each defendant filing motions to try to save their own individual behinds. The twice impeached, four times indicted former president filed numerous motions just last night, marking his first real attempt to get the charges against him dismissed. Several of those motions piggybacked on the arguments already put forward by some of his co-defendants, including the ongoing efforts by Trump's former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and others to try to move their cases from Georgia state court to federal court. Meadows' request was denied last week, but he's requested that a judge pause that ruling as he appeals to the 11th Circuit. In a court filing today, D.A. Fonnie Willis's office replied, asking the court to deny the request for a stay, writing that Meadows' legal team failed to make a persuasive case that he would actually win on appeal, adding that Meadows' filing didn't even address the substance of the court order to get his Georgia trial underway. Joining me now is Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor, professor of law at Georgetown University and MSNBC legal analyst, and Katie Fang, former Florida prosecutor, MSNBC legal contributor, and the host of the Katie Fang show right here on MSNBC. We, this is our dynamic duo. We like to bring you guys together. Let's, let's start talking about this attempt to get a stay. So Mark Meadows obviously playing for time. Um, how likely is it that he'll get a stay? It's very unlikely because he does not have a case. <laughs> He's trying to get the case moved from federal from state court to federal court, and he's trying to get it dismissed. So he gets it removed if he can prove that he was carrying out federal responsibilities, and that's the subject of the criminal charge. Right. Last week, a trial judge told him in no uncertain terms he had no federal business in Georgia. Under the Constitution, administering elections, uh, that's a state responsibility. Mm-hmm. President Trump had Nothing to do with that. That didn't stop him. As we all know, Trump threatened those election workers. And in these motions, again, it's really Donald Trump who's being implicated. Founding Willis loves the part of this where the defendants are demonstrating it's every woman and man for themselves. Yeah. So it's not like 19 people versus Fannie Willis. Right. Uh, they're all looking to make a deal, looking to get a break even if that means implicating the former president, as we saw Mark Meadows do last week when he said everything that he did was directed by Donald Trump, not a defense for Mark Meadows, 
very incriminating for Donald Trump. Very interesting. Right. Because, you know, Katie, it, it does feel like there's a breaking point coming uh, in these 19 cases, because the only way to get out of it, if you're one of these other 18 people, is to say Trump did it. And for him, the easiest way to get out of it is to say they did it. So they do not have mutual interests at all, including Mark Meadows and Trump. Yeah, and so there have been a, a number of test balloons, Joy, that I would say have already been raised. One was the Mark Meadows attempt to remove to federal court. That was a test balloon that Trump was watching very carefully to see if this argument that I was acting as a federal official would basically give Trump the same cover to try his run at removing to federal court. We saw how poorly that worked out for Mark Meadows. There is still a pending hearing coming up on Monday for Jeff Clark, who was a federal official at the time, purportedly, and as well as the three fake Georgia electors whose hearing is set for one. Wednesday, uh, Wednesday, September 20th. But the reason why I say there's even more test balloons that are about to come up is that this expedited speedy demand that was a calculated gamble that was made by Kenneth Chesbro and Sidney Powell, who currently are bound together, even though Powell has now filed yesterday a motion to sever her case from Kenneth Chesbro. I mean, people are really saying right now, I do not want to be shoulder to shoulder with you in court. But that case is going to go to trial October 23rd. And I want to emphasize something for all of your viewers. Discovery cutoff is September 20th. What is today's date? September 12th, right? So then you're going to see discovery cut off by September 20th. They have to file motions, substantive motions by September 27th. They will be argued. And then that jury is going to be starting to be picked on October 23rd. So in terms of division in a joint defense, you can bet your bottom dollar. And Paul will agree with me, I'm sure. There are some very hard conversations that are being had right now between Kenneth Chesbro and Sidney Powell's lawyers and their clients. Yeah. Because even Kenneth Chesbro today filed a motion that said, you need to dismiss this indictment, Judge, because everything I did was in good faith as hmm. a lawyer for my client at the time. So you're already seeing more finger pointing in these <laughs> legal filings. And so they're going to try to save their own hides by pointing fingers. And who else are you going to point it to? But your yeah. client, you got to blame one person and you got to blame Donald Trump. Yeah, you got to point out. Uh, let, let, let's talk about what happened in, in Georgia today. Blaine Alexander, a wonderful reporter, um, she did an interview with the sheriff uh, of Fulton County. His name is Patrick Labatt on why. He, he, she explained, he explained why he insisted that Trump take that mug shot. Take a listen. We have 3,600 detainees. 85 to 90 percent look like you and I. And they don't have that choice. We don't give them that choice. And they are simply accused of a crime as well. And so this accusation, this indictment, really at its highest level, I have a responsibility to our community to make sure that, that we are equal across the board and what that looks like. Have I received death threats because of it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thoughts? Uh, death threats for making the point that no person, including the president of the United States and the former president, is above the law. Death threats for that? Really? Donald Trump thinks that the Fulton County Courthouse and jail are for black people and for poor people and for brown people. He thinks that he has no business there. People like Fannie Willis, people like the sheriff, people like Judge Chunkin are doing their jobs objectively and dispassionately and making the case yeah. that nobody, including a rich white male billionaire, is above the law. Neither are the five officers charged in the Tyree Nichols murder. 
they yeah. are now facing federal charges. Yes, and they're all African-American. You can be black and still pick up a civil rights uh, violation from the Justice Department. So it's not going to increase their punishment if they're convicted. They're looking at up to 15 years or 10 years for these charges. But for the second-degree murder state charges, they can get 15 to yeah. life. The good news, though, is that the new Justice Department under Merrick Garland under uh, President Biden is back in the business yeah. of civil rights. Donald Trump, A.G. Barr, they got out of that business. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now not only do we have these federal civil rights uh, charges in Memphis, also against the officers responsible for, for, for Breonna Taylor's death in Louisville and the four officers implicated in George Floyd's murder in, in um, Minnesota have also been convicted of federal civil rights charges. Oh, I did not know about that second one, uh, that and Breonna Taylor's case. That is good to know. Uh, Paul Butler, Katie Fang, the dynamic duo. Thank you both. Coming up next on The Readout, I just got back from Ghana, where I visited churches that doubled as dungeons where slaves were kept in captivity. I will have some thoughts on Christianity's active presence in the Atlantic slave trade and how those ramifications still play out today. That's next. It sure feels good to be back. And for those curious uh, where I was and who don't follow me on the TikTok and the Instagram, the hubs and I spent three days in Madrid and Toledo, Spain, before embarking on our dream week-long trip to Ghana, where we both have ancestral origins, as many people with Jamaican and Guyanese backgrounds do. Fun fact, so many Jamaicans were actually Ghanaians before slavery. Jamaican citizens can actually travel to Ghana without obtaining a visa. We both needed them, however. One of the interesting things about heading to Europe and Africa back-to-back is that it really brought home what friend of the show Robert Robbie Jones wrote in his book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy, which we discussed on this show last week. And that is just how central the Christian churches, the Catholics, Presbyterians, and Anglicans, etc., were in the grisly enterprise of the Atlantic slave trade. Many of those gorgeous churches in Europe were built in the 15th century during the vaunted Age of Exploration, when Christopher Columbus and other European explorers were sanctioned and funded by European kings like Spain's Ferdinand and Isabella to get out there and find gold, to finance and gild those massive churches and build the fortunes and castles of the monarchs, and also the slave castles in places like Elmina and Cape Coast in the Gold Coast, present-day Ghana, also built in the 15th century. And as for any indigenous people, the explorers encountered the so-called Indians in the Americas or black Africans. All the explorers had to do, per the Catholic Church's doctrine of discovery, was attempt to convert them to Christianity. And if they resisted in any way, the explorers had the permission of God himself to conquer them, kill them, enslave them for life, and most importantly, to dispossess them of their lands with or without a treaty. Conquerors enslaved large groups of the newly encountered peoples in the Americas, working many of them to death. And then a Spanish clergyman who noted the high death rates from European illnesses among the indigenous slaves in the Americas suggested using Africans instead. And the arms race was on between the European kingdoms to set up slave trade bases in Africa and buy prisoners of tribal wars or use slave catchers to kidnap as many people as possible. 
Europeans literally fought many wars with each other to hold on to these slave castles, to ply their grisly trade. They protected them with literal armies and cannons. That is how valuable the slave trade was. One of the wildest facts about those slave castles in Cape Coast and Elmina was that churches were literally deliberately built directly on top of the dungeons where the captured Africans were kept so that the godly governors running the place and their soldiers could contemplate the Almighty while literally below their feet. Men and women packed into the crowded pitch dark cells were loudly suffering and often dying having to eat, sleep, defecate, urinate, and everything else on the same dank floors. And any who didn't go blind or die were forced at gunpoint through the door of no return and onto slave ships bound for the new world, never to be heard from again. Those who did die in the slave dungeons did not receive Christian burials despite the churches overhead. Their bodies were pitched into the sea. Millions of Africans were transported across the Atlantic as human property. The Atlantic slave trade was the largest forced human migration in world history. Millions never survived the infamous Middle Passage across the Atlantic, their souls lying beneath the sea between Africa and the Americas. And these right-wingers act all shocked that there would be black mermaids. Among those who did survive was my own maternal ancestor, a Fulani Muslim woman named Ihaba Wabusia, later a converted Christian renamed Michi Johnson. She was born in 1800 in Ghana and as a six or seven year old was incarcerated in one of those slave castles in Ghana and shipped to present day Guyana with her mom. She actually lived to be 106 years old. She died in 1906, 23 years before my own mother was born. This stuff is not ancient history, y'all. And history is fascinating, right? Americans should consider making it legal to teach in schools here. And the last thing I will add is that when you look at the sometimes violent history of organized religion, from the slave trade to the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition and the Salem witch trials to the religion-based conflicts and conquest in places like Israel-Palestine, or the emergence, again, per Robbie Jones, of right-wing Christianity-based white supremacy here in the U.S., It should not surprise you that the base of support for far-right policies on banning books and distorting history, on abortion, on LGBTQ issues, even support for cults like QAnon and the cult of personality around Donald Trump, are grounded in religious extremism. I'm not saying religion is always bad. Sometimes it does beautiful things. But organized religion has, shall we say, a colorfully mixed history. And right now in this country, religious extremism mixed with white nationalism and that Trump cult of personality are straining our society and our democracy to the breaking point. And the question is, what do we do about it? Frank Schaefer, whose very own father once galvanized the religious right, joins me next to try to help us get to an answer. Stay with us. We need to be the party of nationalism. And I'm a Christian and I say it proudly. We should be Christian nationalists. Mm -hmm. Over the past couple of years, we've seen the Republican Party, both subtly and not so subtly, embrace openly the idea of Christian nationalism. But it's important to note that while they claim to use Christian values to justify their extremist policies, almost none of what they stand for is actually based on the teachings of the impoverished Jewish guy from Palestine who was killed by the Romans in 1 BC and who preached to care for the poor, the sick, and immigrants to not pray in public and to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, the guy these people claim to believe in. Take Marjorie Taylor Greene, the QAnon curious Georgia congresswoman who yesterday, on the anniversary of 9-11, tweeted, and I quote, 
States should consider seceding if the president doesn't change his policies at the southern border. Please, nobody tell her Jesus was a refugee. She might try to deport him. Joining me now is Frank Schaefer, film director, screenwriter, and author of the book Why I Am an Atheist Who Believes in God. Frank, uh, thank you so much for being here. I will just allow you to comment, if you will, if you would, on a member of Congress saying that we should secede. I guess maybe not her state because it's kind of a blue state now. Uh, we should secede from the union if immigrants are not mistreated. That's not real biblical. You know, I don't think. yeah, Joy, Joy, let me say the introduction you gave with your trip to Ghana and the slave trade is really, sadly, the perfect background to address this subject. This week in Washington, there's a group meeting of Christian leaders, pray, vote, stand, at which Marjorie Taylor Greene, Donald Trump, DeSantis and the rest of the crew will all speak. And this same group is very much allied these days with Viktor Orban of Hungary, who has established a kind of Christian nationalism, white nationalism there. You know, when Eichmann, who was the designer of the Holocaust with Himmler, came to Hungary with only 20 officers after Hungary fell to the Germans, he said, you know, we don't need to bring more troops here because the Roman Catholic Church is already doing such a good job rounding the Jews up, suppressing them. They will do our work for us. And indeed, they did. That ties in so beautifully with that amazing oratory that you just gave us on your trip to Ghana. Thank you. Where there are churches sitting in a building with prisoners, slaves, enslaved people languishing beneath. This is not new. What your listeners, what your viewers have to understand is that white nationalism and Christian nationalism have marched hand in hand since the 14th century into our world, and they have never stopped. There are interagnums where there are pauses, but the American Christian nationalists, the white nationalists, this amalgam of people who are now trying to stop the teaching of black history, roll back rights for women and gay folks, who are trying to put us back in a position of ignoring our own racist history as if we can blot it out, are very much in line with the history of Christian conquest. They are not the anomaly. They are the norm. What is the anomaly is the wonderful breathing space we were given by the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. What is the anomaly is this idea that somehow equality and freedom should coexist. You know, we're the only country on earth right now that has even attempted a truly multiracial, multicultural society built on our broken history of slavery that we have tried to move beyond. And now these people, the Republican Party, this week, pray, vote, stand. If you go online and look at their website, it reads like a primer on how to strip American democracy away and replace it with Christian nationalism, a theocracy that makes us far more akin to the church in Ghana built above the slave quarters than to anything we would recognize. Indeed, much more akin to the women's fight in Iran against their government where they are raped in police stations. Let's just remember something. Viktor Orban, who is the friend of all these people, a big fan of Tucker Carlson, who quotes him all the time and invites him over, has started to move his country towards an authoritarian model that Fox News, Tucker Carlson, the Republican Party, Donald Trump, all these others want to emulate here in America. And so sadly, 
And genuinely, it breaks my heart. When I was listening to you talking about your trip to Ghana, this is not past history. This is now. And it is going to repeat here in the United States unless we crush, and I choose that word advisedly, this snake in our midst of a combination of racism, white supremacy, which you pointed out so well in the segment before our little talk here, and the rise of Christian nationalism. This is all one and the same reactionary movement. These people are holding hands across the distance of history, which, as you rightly point out, is not so long ago, with the slave trade. They are rolling us back into an era where what was unthinkable even 20 or 30 years ago in America is now becoming thinkable. It is no, it is no coincidence that there's also a rise of anti-Semitism, that in Elon Musk, for instance, today, we have echoes of Henry Ford in 1920, who started an anti-Semitic newspaper yeah. railing against Jews. These yeah. things all go together. White nationalism, Christian nationalism, anti-Semitism. This is the world the Republican Trump cult has brought us. And every American who loves their country mm. must stand up and fight these people with tooth and nail. It, yeah. is, it is a life and death struggle. This is not a moment for faltering. Amen. You can get an amen, uh, Frank Schaefer. Uh, it is always a pleasure. Thank you. I really appreciate uh, everything that you said. We'll be right back. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back with a special announcement. Before I hand it off to All In with Chris Hayes, I wanted to let all the readers out there know that Chris is taking his podcast, Why Is This Happening?, back out on the road. And I will be joining Chris at the Fillmore in Philadelphia on Monday, October 16th. For ticket information, scan the QR code on your screen or go to msnbc.com slash with pod. I'm really looking forward to a lively discussion. And here he is right now. Oh, Chris. Oh, there he is. Hey, what's Joy, up, man? I am so excited about this. You know, I was talking uh, <laughs> in a meeting earlier today. We we're talking about how we're going to do this. I was like, I don't think I've known Joy forever. I've had her on the show millions of times. But I don't think I've ever like interviewed Joy. Like, I don't think I've ever like actually <laughs> no. gotten the full Joy Reid arc. I don't think like I'm very excited. For, I really am very excited for this. I'm so glad you're going to join us. I am so excited. We're going to be in Philly. First of all, we're getting cheesesteaks. I'm going to go ahead and switch Definitely. my diet up, but that's happening. Um, and just I'm excited to be on the show. Your podcast is amazing, so I'm glad to be a part of it. I can't wait to do it. Thank you so much, Joy. I'm really looking Thank forward you. to it. Thank you. Same. All right. 